If you would turn again to 1 Corinthians 13, we want to close this year by looking again at this wonderful chapter, chapter on love. It's especially important, I think, in our day and time in light of all that's going on and all the ways in which people are uh, trying to define love. 1 Corinthians 13. You read this beautiful passage for us, and then we'll look at it again this morning. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of God. May he bless it to our souls. Um, it's interesting, I received for Christmas a biography of Winston Churchill, very thick biography. And I just started reading it, and it starts at the beginning of his life, as you would expect it would. And what stood out to me in just a few pages is how much little Winnie, as he called himself, and they called him, I guess, how much he loved his parents, or at least longed to be loved by his parents. His parents would send him off to school like a lot of people did in England in those days because he was a part of the aristocracy. And so they would ship their kids off to various boarding schools and they shipped him off and he would write letters to his parents, uh, letter after letter after letter, begging them to come see him, and they never did. And it it's just a testimony to how much he wanted to be loved by them. And the reality is, we've all been created to be loved. I mean, God created us to be loved by God. And he created us to love like God loves. And in 1 Corinthians 13, what we see is, we see how God does love mankind. And how he calls us to love like he loves. Because when you read what we find here, you could put God in place of love. God is patient. God is kind. And especially the Lord Jesus. You could put Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Because I'm certain that when Paul wrote that, he was realizing that what he was talking about in encouraging the Corinthians to love each other 
was he was basically encouraging them to be like Jesus, live out the life on earth just like Jesus manifested God in the flesh and loved just like this. God doesn't call us to love in ways he doesn't love. And Jesus doesn't call us to follow him in love in ways that he hasn't already loved. So 1 Corinthians 13 is a picture of the incarnation. It is what Jesus uh, loved like when he dealt with his disciples and when he dealt with the Pharisees and when he dealt with other people. This is what it looked like. Sometimes when we um, read the Gospels, it's hard to know. I wonder what the tone was. I wonder what the attitude was when Jesus said this or did this or whatever. Well, the tone and attitude would be consistent with whatever we find here in 1 Corinthians 13. That's exactly what is being pictured here for us is the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to and what God is calling us to through this passage as well. Well, What this is is actually an elaboration on what Paul says at the very end of chapter 12 when he's been talking about the issue of spiritual gifts and at the very last of the chapter in chapter 12 he says earnestly desire the greater gifts then he's basically going to say but most of all earnestly desire the greatest gift which is love and he says that I show you a still more excellent way and so first Corinthians 13 is the more excellent or most excellent way we are to relate to one another. And so love is the more excellent way based on what he says in the first three verses, as we've already seen, because it's absolutely necessary. If I speak but don't have a heart of love that backs up those words, then God says it's just like I'm just a grating, noisy um, sound that, that um, is more irritating than helpful. It's something that is unwanted. It's just an empty word. Or if we do grand things like removing mountains uh, from the land into the sea, but I don't have any heart of love behind it, then it's just a show. It's just a show. Or if I even sacrifice all my money or my possessions and I choose to live like a pauper out in the desert, but there's not a heart of love behind that then God says it's it's nothing why is that because God created us in his image to do what to image him and the Bible says God is love and so therefore the glory of God is his gracious love to sinners and therefore I image God as I show a gracious love to those who don't deserve it and that's exactly what Paul is calling the Corinthians to And what God is calling us to as well. The problem in our day is we have a lot of people that want to define love in all kinds of ways. Love is love, which means if I call it love, if I call this relationship a loving relationship, if I call what I'm doing loving, then by my own determination, it's a loving thing. And yet the Bible says that ultimately love is rooted in the nature of God because God is love. And so whatever true love looks like, it has to conform to the nature and the character of God himself. Secondly, the Bible says that we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. So therefore, true love has some kind of component of not exalting myself, but laying down my life for another person, whether it's 
actually a physical dying or if it's just a laying down of my rights, laying down of my will, laying down of my agenda, laying down of my time, whatever it might be. And then it also tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law, which means love is the fulfillment of what the Bible says is the loving thing to do. And so therefore, in our country, if they deny that marriage is between a man and a woman and and that all kinds of different people can come together and we can call it love and we can call it marriage, but it contradicts the word of God. God says that is not love just because you call it love. In fact, I ran across a website the other day that I think is called biblicalhouseholds.com or .org or something like that. It's actually, if I understand correctly, an evangelical Christian polygamy movement. And they're... They have this little symbol where you've got a man standing in the middle and a wife on either side and a child on either side of those women. And that's their symbol. And so more and more these days, you've got all kinds of groups inside and outside the, quote, church that are trying to redefine love. And obviously the Corinthians must have had some kind of idea of what love was because they'd been taught to love. And yet their idea of love did not match up with 1 Corinthians 13. And so I think one of the things that's helpful is always to review our own definitions of love and whether or not that's really what we're pursuing in our relationships because it's so easy to get off track. The Corinthians got off track so easy. Their priorities, their goals for their relationships were not love, but something else. And we have to be careful of doing the very same thing. The second portion, verses 4 through 7, is Paul's description of love. It's not necessarily a definition per se, but it's a description of what love looks like in dealing with um, imperfect people. And so he talks about being patient and kind and not jealous and all those things. Um, As I've mentioned before, we use love in all kinds of ways. Um, I can use it with regard to hot dogs, which means I love how these things taste or whatever. Um, The Barney kind of love, I love you because you love me. Or the family kind of love, I love you because you were born into my family and we're kin. But the agape kind of love is a, I love you because that's what I do love. God says, I love you because that's who I am. That's what I am. That's what I do. I love. I can do no other because it would contradict who and what I am. And he calls us to think that way too, that we've been born again and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, given the Holy Spirit, the very person of God who is the personification of love living in us. And he calls us to embrace God's perspective of I love, I'm loving you, not because you deserve it, not because I have to, but, it, but because it is what I do as a child of the God who says, this is what I do, regardless of what you do, regardless of the circumstances. And so just a very, as a very quick reminder um, of how to think about these things, he says, first of all, love is patient which for me is kind of like the platform for everything else. That in order for me to love someone, I have to hang in there. I can't just give up on them and walk away. If I'm going to love them, I have to be in relationship to them. So it's the platform for everything else. Love is 
kind or it's merciful to those who don't deserve it. It's like the hard working shovel, so to speak. It goes to work to do good to others. It's not jealous. It doesn't strive after what others have, but it's like the best man in a wedding who rejoices over the happiness of others, even when they're still single. It still finds joy in the happiness of others and doesn't covet that or be envious or jealous of that. Love, it goes on to say, uh, does not brag, is not arrogant. It doesn't exalt itself and put others down. It's, it's an elevator that raises people up. It brings itself down to a, an appropriate level. It doesn't carry an inflated opinion of, each, of itself because it looks at itself in a mirror, so to speak, and it sees what God says is true, affirms what God says is true of, of itself and of others. It does not, um, how does he put it, um, act unbecomingly, which is the idea of it uh, does not show disrespect toward God or others. It shows proper respect. It's like the chivalry of love. It does not seek its own private good. It actually looks for opportunities to find the happiness of others even as it pursues its own happiness. It is not um, easily provoked, uh, which means it's not easily irritated or offended. In a sense, it has a thick skin. And then the one that is very interesting, it does not take into account wrong suffered or doesn't impute evil, can be understood as either it does not assume the worst of others or keep a record of wrongs. It's as if I try to engage with people on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis with a clean slate as much as possible. I don't try to impute all past actions into their present words and actions. And I try to make sure I'm not simply acting out of a long list of wrongs that I've kept a record of against them. It says it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but loves what is uh, truth or loves the truth or what is right and you could say that is the backbone of love your love needs to have a backbone it can't just be twisted and turned in whatever way you want it to it has to be able to stand up in the face of opposition and if somebody comes to you and says well if you love that person you would do this or if you loved me you would do this well how are you going to know whether or not to say No, I'm not going to do that because I do love you. Where's your backbone going to come from? It's just based on feeling. You have no backbone. You have to say, no, the word of God says this is love. And that has to be our backbone that enables us to stand strong in a world that increasingly is trying to define what love looks like. And then finally it says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, which means it stands the test of trials Stands the test of time. It's like the ever-ready bunny. It keeps going and going and going. So anyway, that was just a very quick reminder of the kinds of things that Paul is talking about here that, that love does or does not do. Love has boundaries. It has standards. It has a definite shape and a definite look. And Paul is picturing that. But he pictures that for us. Uh, in these verses, it brings us to the latter part of the chapter, which is what I want to get to 
today as we wrap up this uh, chapter for the most part. In verse 8, he says, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Love never fails. Um, The picture there is actually love never falls down. Love never just collapses. Love stands up under whatever pressure, whatever circumstance, whatever relationship it's in. It hangs on. And one of the things that we're tempted to say is that I cannot, I cannot bear to be in this relationship anymore. I cannot continue in relationship to this person. Now, there may be certain situations where the loving and right and good thing is actually to bring about some kind of separation. But that should not ever be our first inclination. And oftentimes, that is our first inclination. Whenever relationships are difficult, circumstances are difficult, we basically fall out, fall down, collapse. Our, our, Our heart to continue loving just kind of dissipates. And goes away and Paul says that that's not the way it should be. And part of it is, I think, as C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that we don't like the fact that um, we are so vulnerable in loving relationships where we're being hurt over and over and over again. And that's why C.S. Lewis could say to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be certainly wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly excuse me, be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And so love is hard. Love is painful. Love love is basically exposing yourself to being hurt and offended over and over and over again. And the Bible says that God himself experiences that on a daily basis, that every day, There are sinners who shake their fists in the face of God, spit in his face, hate him, curse him, don't acknowledge him. And God continues loving, continues loving, continues loving. And he calls us to seek him for the grace to do the same thing. We won't do it perfectly, but he calls us to seek him for the grace to be more and more like him. And Paul is obviously encouraging the Corinthians to do do the same thing. In the light of the fact, they don't see love as being that important. What they see as important is all the spiritual gifts. And they think, you know, if I have a a great speaking voice or a speaking gift, or if I'm able to do wonderful miracles, 
then I am a great person. And Paul is actually rebuking the Corinthians and saying, I don't care how great your gifts are. I don't care how great your speaking ability is. I don't care what you can do that is showy and glamorous and gets the, the applause of men. I want to know, do you love people? Do you love the people that are hard to love? Not the easy people to love, the people you see for 30 minutes, you know, every other week. But what about the people you live with? What about the, the congregation you're a part of? What about the people you work with? Do you love those people that, that challenge you and that, that make it hard to truly love? How are you doing there? That's what he's challenging them to really consider. But what he's also wanting to do is he's wanting to encourage them to embrace this goal of love in light of the fact that they understand that this is ultimately what God is moving us all toward. When the Bible says in Romans 8 that we are being conformed into the image of Christ, this is what he's talking about. We are being conformed to the image of perfect love. Because what he's talking about in these latter verses is the issue of what is really the ultimate goal? Because he says in these verses, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So part of his encouragement to the Corinthians is to think about the coming of the perfect. What What is the perfect? And a lot of people have tried to understand what Paul is talking about here. A lot of people try to use this chapter to determine whether or not they should be a cessationist or a non-cessationist with regard to spiritual gifts. I think those who look at this and say, this Paul isn't really trying to give you an argument one way or another with regard to that issue. That's not the point. And so it, it really doesn't bolster anyone's point with regard to the issue of how you view whether some gifts have ceased or not. But what he's highlighting is that there is a goal in mind called the perfect. But let me just give you some ideas of how people understand what Paul is saying here. Some people think the perfect that Paul is talking about here is simply love itself. Meaning, whenever you guys get to the point where uh, you're loving like you should be, then you'll be, you'll be good. F.F. Um, Bruce thought that. B.B. Warfield thought that he was talking about the Scripture. Whenever the Scripture is completed, the perfect revelation of God, then all these other gifts will cease. Uh, some people think he's talking about the perfect mature church, meaning the church after the apostolic, apostolic age, when all the apostolic um, ministry has ended, the mature church. Others see it as whenever we die and we go to heaven, that when we die and go to heaven, then that's when the perfect comes or we begin to love like we're supposed to love, so to speak, perfectly. Others see it as the return of Christ and others see it as ultimately the eternal state. Most of the early church fathers saw it as one of those last three. Calvin saw it as basically beginning when the believer dies and goes to heaven, but ultimately consummated in the new heavens and the new earth or the eternal state. That the perfect that's being talked about there is the state of 
perfect love where we've been conformed into the image of Christ and we love just like God loves. And that is why I believe Jonathan Edwards preached his sermon on 1 Corinthians 13, Heaven, a world of love. That he saw the perfect as being the ultimate condition of saints with God in heaven forever and ever. And he described it this way. He said, There are none but lovingly objects in heaven no odious or unlovely or polluted person or thing is to be seen there. There's nothing there that is wicked or unholy. He says, there's nothing that is deformed with any natural or moral deformity, but everything is beauteous to behold and amiable and excellent in itself. All the persons that belong to the blessed society of heaven are lovely. The father of the family is lovely, and so are all his children. The head of the body Lovely, and so are all the members. Oh, what tranquility tranquility will there be in such a world as this? Who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this? How sweet and holy and joyous. What a haven of rest to enter after having passed through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice are Waves of a restless ocean, always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. What a canaan of rest to come to after going through this waste and howling wilderness full of snares and pitfalls and poisonous poisonous serpents where no rest could be found. Every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God and holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor in that garden excuse me, and the sweet odor that they all send forth and with which they fill the bowers of that paradise above. Every soul there is a note as in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with, with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. And so all help each other to their utmost to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head and to pour back love into the great fountain of love, which is God, whence they are supplied and filled with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love and in that godlike joy that is its blessed fruit, such as I hath not seen nor ear heard nor hath entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus in the full sunlight of the throne enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. So when he says heaven is a world of love, that's exactly what he means. He means that God is perfect love. He will love us perfectly and he will conform us into the image of Christ so that we love perfectly. And so that no matter how many more uh, rewards Paul gets than I get, I will be completely content and happy that Paul has been rewarded richly for his faithfulness as an apostle. And it doesn't matter that my reward is going to be much less than that. I'll be fully and forever happy. And yet he says that our happiness will be full but ever increasing. For eternity. Why? Because God is infinite. God is eternal. He is boundless. His love is boundless. His blessings are boundless. He will never stop 
increasing our happiness forever and ever and ever. And the love that we have will be perfect. There will be nothing that will cause us to be inhibited, to be unable to praise God fully, unable to embrace someone who is there. There will be no hindrances. We'll be freer than we've ever been before. It's interesting. um, Jan and I saw a movie called uh, After Death. It's about uh, people who've had um, death experiences of various kinds, and they've done research on what happened to people in this docu-series. And it, it was interesting, the kinds of testimonies that people gave. Some people said, you know what? When I died, I actually felt more alive, not less alive. And they talked about the fact that, as you've probably heard many people talk about, seeing bright lights and feeling warmth. Over and over again, people would talk about just this ocean of love, this ocean of love, this ocean of love. So there are things that I think are really true. The sad thing about the the movie is there's no talk about Jesus in the movie. Now, I don't know that everybody interviewed in that didn't say anything about Jesus, but they didn't include it in the movie. And so you could walk away from the movie thinking that maybe Jesus isn't important to finding out whether or not God is the ocean of love that he says he is. That would be Satan basically deceiving people, giving them enough truth to make them feel content apart from Jesus. And that's what Satan does many times. People think, well, God's just an ocean of love. When I die, I'll just enter into that ocean of love. But the Bible says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No man enjoys the ocean of love apart from me. And so that's the danger of the movie, is that you can walk away with some truth that is gloriously Wonderful. Yes, God is an ocean of love. And Edwards paints it so beautifully that we will be submerged in that ocean of love forever. But we will not participate in that unless our sins have been forgiven, unless we've been united by faith to Christ. Only through him can we enjoy that forever and ever. But if indeed we do enjoy that, we will, you could say, in a sense, be laying down our lives for eternity. Why would I say that? If indeed love is a laying down of your life, um, we often think, well, what is heaven going to be like? Are we just going to sit around, you know, singing hymns or playing harps or just twiddling our thumbs? What are we going to do? Well, if the nature of love is truly giving of myself to someone else, and I think that's exactly what we'll do. There's a story about um, a man who has a dream. And he dreams that he goes, as you might recall, dreams that he goes to hell and he dreams that he goes to heaven. And in these two places, you've got people that look exactly the same for the most part. They're all sitting at a table and they're all uh, at this table that is filled with food and in both locations and both 
of the groups, as you might recall, have spoons, long spoons tied onto the ends of their arms. And the group in one place is trying desperately to get the food into their mouths, these spoons that are too long, and they can't get the food into their mouths, and they're frustrated and angry. Got the other group that is dipping food with these spoons that are too long to put in their own mouth, but they're feeding the person across the table from them. This group over here that's angry and frustrated that they cannot feed themselves is the group in hell. The group over here that is feeding each other and is happy and joyous is the group in heaven. Because love serves. Love lays down its life. What are we doing in heaven? We're going to be exhibiting the heart of God who came and served us all the way to the point of death on a cross. And so heaven will be a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. You want to go there? All right. Well, he goes on, and let me just try to wrap this up uh, in the next few minutes here. He talks about the fact that um, he brings in the whole picture of a child. And the question is, why does he talk about that in verse 11? When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. I think the point that he's trying to make there is, Corinthians, you're acting like children. What do children do? John Newton would say, if you were to offer to a little child um, an apple, or what he would say, a banknote, you know, we'd say maybe um, a shiny toy or a $100 bill, they'll take the shiny toy, not knowing that they could get a lot more with that $100 bill. But they'll take the shiny toy. And I think what Paul is saying here is, Corinthians, you're like little children. You like the shiny toys of the spiritual gifts. You've got these toys to play with. And you can exalt yourself and enjoy yourself with these little toys. But you need to grow up. Because the grown-up doesn't value the shiny toy, but he values the love behind the shiny toy. He values the love that helps you know how to use that shiny toy in the right way. The grown-up values the love that's involved, not just the toys, whereas the little child is just focused on the toy. And the Corinthians were just focused on their toys, focused on their gifts and those kinds of things. And so he's encouraging them to think maturely and to value love above everything else. John Newton also, interestingly enough, talks about the fact that when we've tasted love of Christ, when we become Christians, uh, that we are enabled to love our fellow creatures, fellow people. He says uh, the one who's basically been born again loves other creatures or fellow men at first sight. I thought about that. That's an interesting thing to say. Do we do that? Do you walk down the street and if you encounter someone... Is your heart inclined to love them at first sight? Or are we inclined to say, I need to wait and see whether or not uh, this is someone I want to love? So in what sense could he even say that the Christian is someone, because he's been born of God and is like God, actually loves 
other people at first sight. Well, I think it's along the same lines as what Jonathan Edwards said when he defined love in this chapter this way. He said, the main thing in that love, which is the sum of the Christian spirit, is benevolence or goodwill to others. What he means is the love that we're called to is a love like God's love that actually has a goodwill toward every single person, friend or enemy. What kind of goodwill? Desires their good and wants to pursue their good. That it's not a matter of having evil thoughts and harsh thoughts and just wanting their worst and and wanting them to be hurt or anything like that. It's actually just the opposite. Even those who've hurt us, our heart goes out to them and we want them to be blessed. We want them to be saved. We want them to grow. We want them to be free. There is a heart of goodwill toward those we love. Then he goes on from there and he talks about, uh, in verse 12, the idea of seeing in a mirror dimly. In that day and time, um, they had polished metal for mirrors. They don't have the, didn't have the mirrors that we do. They have polished metal. And in that case, what they could see wasn't a perfect image like we can see, relatively perfect, I guess you could say. Um, it was a much less distinct image than what we have today in our day and time. And Paul basically says that even at our best, our knowledge is limited. And therefore, the best we can do is use the mirror of, and Calvin and others would say what he's talking about here is the word of God. Like it says in James chapter 1 that the mirror has been given to us in a sense through through which we see ourselves, but through which we also see the world that is unseen. We don't see it perfectly, clearly yet, but we see enough of it to be able to follow the shining light and to move in the direction that we need to go. And so Paul is basically saying, in this life, we're not going to love perfectly, we're not going to see perfectly but we are to make that our goal. Goal of being perfect in love and the goal of growing more and more in love. And that brings me to the end in verse 13 where he says, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Next week we're going to talk more about the relationship between those three three things, but let me just close with this. Um, Oftentimes we have a year in review and we, you know, think about our lives the past year, which is a good thing. Uh, Jan does a wonderful job each year of writing out our newsletter for Christmas and she reviews the year, reviews what different people have accomplished or experienced in various ways. And probably the most important thing we can do is... We can do those kinds of things, which is good, because we can give thanks to God for those experiences, give thanks to God for those accomplishments. But we may want to go a little deeper than that and ask the question, how well have I loved this last year? And these questions at the end of your notes are based on 1 Corinthians 13. And I'll just close with reading these. And let's just think about these before we pray. And maybe you can use them as you begin the year. 
to encourage your own heart and encourage all of us to, to grow this year in the kind of love that God shows us. The first question is, how patient and long-suffering were you this year with others and with their faults and their failings? How kind were you this year, speaking of this last year, with others, especially when they were not kind to you? How happy were you this year to see others have and enjoy what you could only dream of having and enjoying? How often did you put others down and exalt yourself? How often did you look down on others and believe that you would never do the things that you see them doing? How often were you rude, disrespectful, or insensitive to others? How often did you selfishly do what you wanted to do, regardless of how it might impact or ignore the needs and desires of others? How often were you quick to become irritated and angry and easily offended? How often did you keep a list of offenses to use against another person? How many people in your life this year have gone unforgiven? How often did you assume the worst of another person's motives and intentions without any real evidence for it or of it? How often did you take pleasure in thinking or saying or doing something wrong or take pleasure in others doing the same? How often did you take pleasure in those you dislike experiencing suffering or evil? How often did you think about whether what you were doing or going to do was right or wrong in the eyes of God? And how often did you gladly do what was right, even when it cost you? And finally, how often did you excuse your failure to love this year to a certain set of circumstances or to the, to the difficulty of relating to particular people you can read that list and if you're like me um, I will find much evidence of having failed over and over and over again the question is what do you do with your failure well that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper we celebrate the fact that even as we do a year in review and see our failure that Jesus died for those sins. Jesus died for our failure to love this past year. He died for our failure to love this coming year. And that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we rest in Jesus and what he did for us. At the same time, we should also recognize that it's not only on one side. The question is, can you see evidences of grace in your life? Can you also see the other side? Can you also see where you did seek to be patient? You did seek to be kind when they weren't being kind to you. You did rejoice in someone else's good and blessing even when it wasn't something that you enjoyed. Um, We need to see both sides because in that case, we give glory to God that we actually responded to some degree as he calls us to respond We were kind. We were patient. We forgave that person. We did not keep a list of wrongs. We fought the temptation to assume the worst of that person. We need to look at the evidences of grace where there was a heart to fight those things and a heart to love like God calls us to love and we give him the praise and the honor and the glory for it. We thank him for it and we pray Do it again, Lord. Do it more. Do it more deeply in me. Help me to grow in these ways. And obviously, we have to ask ourselves, am I running to Jesus 
when I fail and am I seeking to trust God's promises for what I need and desire so that I can be free to love people more like he calls me to love? Let's pray. Father, these questions are so challenging and yet they're meant to encourage us to be real about our failures and to rejoice again in our Savior. But they're also meant to help us to realize that there is grace. Uh, You are up to good things in our lives. You are at work. Uh, You will complete the good work you've begun in us and that there are There are ways in which we are seeking to love and seeking to be faithful and seeking to uh, do the hard thing in hard situations and in hard relationships that we would not do if it were not for your grace in our lives. And so I pray on the one hand that we would be quick to confess and to receive fresh forgiveness and not allow ourselves to feel condemned but that we'd also be quick to recognize the evidences of grace in our lives where your spirit is at work to help us to be patient and long-suffering and to be kind even when others aren't kind. It's showing the love of God and what it really looks like to a world that does not know God. And so we pray that you would encourage our hearts and that we would rejoice in Jesus more that we would look to you more for the grace we need to love more and more like this and that you'd fill our hearts with much, much joy in the whole process. Father, please prepare our hearts now as we partake of the Lord's Supper and we just thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're trusting the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please join us for this time in the um, celebration of the Lord's Supper. And if not, we'd love to share with you how you can.